Hello guys, who might again venturing into journalism, and writing, and reporting, and speaking to people. One of those who did inspire me but to get into it and also to continue was Chika Odua. And so this conversation that I did have with her a couple of weeks ago was really special to me. As you may know, Chika Odua is a journalist. Um, she reports mainly on um, issues affecting black people around the world. And also she has um, sort of a digital um, archive where she speaks to people who experienced the civil war, which we know as the Biafran War between 1967 and 1970. And so we spent time speaking about this, those who she spoke to about the war. We also talked about identity, journalism in Nigeria, and a couple of other interesting topics. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Begin with um, you telling us or telling the audience basically who you are and what you do. My name is Chika Odua. I wear many hats, um, but the I guess the hat that's most relevant to this conversation is the journalist hat. Um, but apart from that, I also am a poet. Um, I'm a performance artist. Um, yes, so as a journalist, I've been in the news industry for about 18, 19 years now. I started quite early. I started in high school. In the U.S., you know, young people are encouraged to kind of start their profession early. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So I started in the newspaper industry and then moved towards electronic media with television and and radio, and now I'm doing more documentary film. My stories are focused on Black people, and I'm very open about that, very unapologetic about that. So that's my reporting niche, you know, exploring the expressions, the experiences, the nuanced experiences, the triumphs, the joys, the hopes, um, the sorrows, you know, the lives of Black people around the world. And so that has taken me to different communities across the U.S. and Central America and, and across Africa, of course, which is where I spend most of my time on the continent. And um, I am now, currently I work as a correspondent for Vice News, which is an American media outlet, Vice. Previous to Vice, I reported for Al Jazeera for a long time and Voice of America and a few other outlets, but that's where I am now with Vice. That's, I think, the best intro I can give. Yeah, I think thanks for that. You also worked with Sahara Reporters or Sahara TV. Yes, I did do that in 2011, I believe. All right, so back to, um, you said you cover mostly stories uh, about Blacks. Is that because you're also Black or is there something um, more to that? <laughs> um, you know, I, there are so many reasons why. Um, perhaps some of it is about self-exploration. So maybe there is a because I'm Black too element. <laughs> but it's, it's more than that. It's, it's also... Um, there's a way that Black people have been depicted mm -hmm. that is not 
really accurate. And I think it's because, you know, the the way the world has worked, the way power structures, the way the world has kind of positioned itself um, with colonialism and, and Europeans and Western, white people have been in power for a long time. So therefore, the narratives, the people who are speaking, you know, the people who own the media companies, they have a certain narrative. They have a certain background. They have, you know, um, they speak from the same voice. And for a long time, people of African descent have been unfairly portrayed in the media. And it's simply because the media has been controlled by, you know, a minority uh, not minority of obviously I want to say the same people you know it's 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 the same people we don't have a lot of Africans who control media so um that's why I'm interested um so some of it is self-exploration some of it is the narrative has been warped across his throughout history the narrative of black people has been warped and that warping of the narrative has been so damaging to people of African descent. It, it really has been damaging. Some, some people have bought into it, you know, and it, it just, it's just been a very uh, unfair, unjust experience, I would say, the depiction of Black people in the media. And so I'm just interested in kind of seeing a fuller picture and, and presenting a fuller picture. I think that's, that's, a, that's a danger I see a lot, sort of, you know, because you are black and, you know, people have an idea of how blacks behave. So uh, immediately conclude that, you know, this is how you definitely behave. So rather than treating one person as an individual, the person is sort of treated as being part of a group. In a sense, that could be true, but I think it's better if people are treated by, rather treated as individuals. I don't know if, if you were, would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, you know, you're saying that because I'm Black, I know how Black people behave. Mm-hmm. I'm going to push against that. No, I'm not saying you. I'm saying sort of how people say, you know, generally speaking, even in the media. Yeah. Because a person is Black and, you know, they've concluded that Blacks behave a certain way. So they would believe that you as a black person would also behave in that particular way. So sort of, you know, stereotypes. Oh, and, I see. And, and okay, so. stereotypes. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think it even just goes beyond stereotypes. It really, the whole depiction started with the colonial experiment when Europeans started making their way into Africa and explorers came. You had the Christian missionaries and you had explorers like David Livingston, an anthropologist. And they were coming from Europe and America. So they met people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and they didn't quite understand what they saw. You know, you know, you had, like I said, explorers coming to the interior of Africa. They didn't take the time to understand the people's culture. They just took pictures and they spread those pictures around the world. And then they started coming up with these silly race theories about but what uh, Africans having smaller brains, things like that, all this kind of stuff. So it just starts from that, from exploitation and misconceptions from the beginning, from the very beginning. And um, it's it snowballed, you know. So now 
it turned into covering what they call savages and seeing how savages behave. They're always at war. They're always fighting. They're always, they can't run their governments, that kind of thing. So it just feels this one side of narrative of portraying Black people as incompetent, unintelligent, fierce, you know, ferocious savages. It's a, it's a racist legacy that still is in place today. So I guess since you, you travel around the world and you know, you're a Black, you're an evil person, you're Nigerian. So what kind of comes out as the most prominent of your identities in that sense is it as a Black? What comes out as what? Your, your prominent identity. Is it, are you often seen as a Black or Igbo or Nigerian? Or is that you mean, are you asking me how do I define myself or how do people see me? Both, both. Well, it really depends on how people see me. It depends on where I am, you know? It depends on where I am. If I'm in Northern Nigeria, you know, they may see me as a female because in Northern Nigeria, the gender differences, it's, it's very obvious. It's, you know, it's very distinct. Men here, women here. Men sit here, women sit here. You know, so yeah. the first thing they're thinking is, are you a woman or are you a male or female? Yeah. How are you dressed if you're a female? You know, so that, that's, a, that's at the forefront of their identity in some in some cultures, I would say in Northern Nigeria, having been there, and so I'm speaking from experience, so you're a woman first, you know? Mm-hmm. And then after you're a woman, it's like the second thing would be, are you a Christian woman or a Muslim woman in Northern Nigeria? Again, based on how you're dressed. Yeah. Am I wearing a hijab? Am I not? So those are, that's how people see you first in Northern Nigeria. What's your gender? What's your religion? After that, it's it's do you speak Hausa? You know, it's yeah. it's what's your ethnicity? And once they hear my name, oh, she's Igbo. So that's how they kind of see me in the north. Um, so it depends on where I am. If I'm in China, the first thing they're going to see is darker skin, you know, brown skin, mm-hmm. not their own skin color. You know, um, I can't really speak on how people see me, but I really just think it depends on where they are, where you are, and the way people see you is a lot, it's oftentimes, it depends on how they, they see themselves. That's really what it is. Mm-hmm. What kind of baggage are they bringing to the table? What insecurities do they have about the world and about other people, you know? So I can't really control how people see me, but it's, it's interesting where I am, you know, um, and another thing that's interesting, Manuel, is that in whatever, wherever space you find yourself, your identity, certain parts of your identity, whether it's male, female, Igbo, Christian, whatever, some people would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So like in some places, um, being a female, it, it's an advantage. In some societies, it's a dis- disadvantage, you know? Um, I personally find that in Nigeria, <laughs> reporting in Africa, it's been an advantage. People always think it's a disadvantage. No, I've had great luck being a female reporter. Female. So, but in some places, um, being a female, in, in the U.S., being a Black female ha- has its advantages. Now, how do I see myself? That's a very, uh, it's a question that I um, 
have many answers to. I'm, I'm still, it's an evolving question, you know, that what you just asked, how do I define myself? But first, I'm a human being. Um, and I, I do have my Africanness as, as the forefront of my identity, very much so. Um, the first thing I like to say, the first thing is, is I'm pan-African. I'm African. You know, some people, they would put their ethnic group first. Oh, I'm Kikuyu. Oh, I'm Hausa, whatever, which is absolutely fine. Everyone can do whatever they want. So for me, I'm African first. Um, yeah, that's that's very forward to me. And then I, I'm a woman. That's very important as well. And then the other categories, I'm Igbo. Um, I'm then later Nigeria <laughs> because I was, you know, um, Igbo was first. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I would see it. Then, I, then I'm spiritual as well. So, right. Yeah. So, what's the difference for you that you've sort of you experienced being a female journalist in Nigeria and in America in the West? Mm-hmm. In America, so being female, not female reporter in Africa versus being female reporter in the yeah, U.S. Exactly. Uh, um, that's an interesting question. Well, the bulk of my professional career has been in Africa. You know, um, I I think that in the U.S. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's that's a difficult one. What I can say is that reporting in Africa as a as a woman, I think it opens doors. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. it really does. Um, people let their people tend to let their guard down when they see a woman. They do, whether you're a male or female. Oftentimes, they let their guard down. But if I come with my male colleague, people start to you know get a bit uptight and like suspicious and just cautious, more cautious once there's a guy sitting next to me, whether it's my cameraman or something like that. But people let their guard down around women and people just feel, oh, she's probably soft, one small, a very soft person. You know, there's this perception of that women are sensitive. All those perceptions come into play. So they they don't think I'm going to ask the hard questions like perhaps they think a man would. But they just let their they let their guard down. They open up. They get emotional. You know, they're frank. They're honest. Um, also, they underestimate women. Yeah. Therefore, I get access. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. So, for example, if I'm trying to get into a meeting, oh, she's just a woman. What, what is she going to do? Let her in. What's she going to do? Let her in. What can she do? You know? So they let me in because I'm just a woman, right? I'm not going to do anything crazy. So (laughs) whereas if it's a guy, oh, no, 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 no. You know, so they underestimate and it's like, oh, it's just just a woman. Just bring her in. She's not going to cause any trouble. That's the word. Yeah, she won't cause any harm. Bring her in. Let her come into the conference. So I I find it, I get that access. I think in the U.S. where things are a bit more egalitarian, you don't see those stark differences, you know? It's not as stark, but in the U.S., I think for me, I'm more aware of being black as opposed to being a woman. In Africa, I'm aware of being a woman. 
and in Africa, like people, they embrace, I get a lot of embraces from people I'm talking to. Oh, they want to start setting me up with their sons. Oh, my son is single and suching, you know? <laughs> so they just, it, they just, they just, oh, come in. Like, it's just a nice, warm, yeah. pleasantness and embrace that I, I appreciate. I love it. They see me as, oh, my daughter. So I love it, you know? So, and that's, that's, that's just African culture, you know? So with the U.S., it's more I'm Black and I'm in this space. Yeah. It's very, very different. Not so much I'm a female. It's I'm a Black female. So, being a black female is way different from being a, a white female. Our our experiences are totally different, totally different. Um, yeah, yeah. So you, you didn't mention spirituality. Would you want to expand on that more? Um, well, I mean, not. I, I won't say too much, but I'm deeply spiritual. Um, spirituality is my is my compass. I don't stray far from it. And um, I'm very, I'm very proud. I don't hide that I'm spiritual. And spirituality, I just find it fascinating in general. So I've done a lot of stories about spirituality. You know, in the US, I did a story on the Baha'i faith. Baha'i is a religion that it comes from um, Central Asia, like so. Persia, you know, Iran, that's where it comes from, the religion Baha'i. I did some stories about Baha'i, the Baha'i faith. I did a story about Buddhism. You know, I've been to Buddhist temples. I did a story about the Mormon uh, denomination. I went to some Mormon churches. Yeah, I'm very fascinated by religion, by religion, spirituality. So it's it's a big part of my practice as a journalist is trying to see a few weeks ago i did a story about odinani um in southeast nigeria and i went to interview a dibia in his shrine and i interviewed a few odinani followers so i i am i am so fascinated by religion you know so not only am i deeply spiritual i think it's just an interesting topic to report on but you don't follow you don't, in a sense, subscribe to any of the mainstream religions in that sense. Oh, well, I don't want to get into the details, but I was raised in a Christian household. My parents are pastors. You know, I don't I don't think I have to name which religion I follow. Sure. But uh but I am I am very spiritual. All right. So uh, again, uh, the subject of identity, I think that's uh, being an evil woman. Um, did that somehow factor in your project, the from Memories, and why did you really get into that? Well, of course, of course, it factored in. I'm an Igbo woman who doesn't speak Igbo, so. Wow. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think, you know, people like me who grew up away from their homeland tend to think about it constantly, constantly, constantly. We're often even more patriotic. So like Nigerian Americans tend to be more patriotic than Nigerians living in Nigeria. That's how I was, you know, because we're not there. And we, so we romanticize Nigeria. We romanticize it so much. And we're so proud to be Nigerian, even though we, we weren't raised there and stuff. So I'm speaking on behalf of 
Nigerians who were, who were raised abroad, whether it's in the UK, South Africa, Canada, you, you know, New York, whatever. So I was constantly thinking about Nigeria, constantly, constantly as a little girl, constantly just wondering about the country and things like that, wanting to go and, and stuff. So the Biafra war story, of course, it intrigued me. It caught my attention, um, especially when I, I learned when I was a teenager that my mom was affected by it. She ran. She was on the move, on the run, like millions of other Igbo people. And I was just like surprised that I'd never heard that before. I was like, what? You were, she said she was a refugee, you know? I was like, a refugee? It was just like, it sounded so strange because I equated refugee and associated that with stuff I saw on TV, you know, like Ethiopia and just all those wars in other places and Rwanda. Not my mom. It just sounded so strange. Um, so I was like, well, why didn't you ever tell me the story? And that's when she told me about the war and things like that. And I was, um, I think I was about 17 when we had that conversation in the house. And I was just, I was just so curious. I was asking more and more questions. And then I started reading um, Chimamanda Adichie, Half of a Yellow Sun. I asked my dad about this war. So yeah, I mean, as a young girl living in the US, I was constantly searching for information mm -hmm. about Nigeria. Constantly. So, as you said, I think both at, at school and even with family, to save the Biafran War, Civil War, whichever way anyone want to call it, it's not, the story is not being told. Why is that? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. There's a deliberate attempt by the federal government to kind of squash the narrative, to stifle the narrative. You know, there is no official narrative, to be honest. We don't even have an official count of how many people died. So it's a deliberate move to suppress talk about the war. It's, it's very deliberate. It's why the Half of Yellow Sun movie was was blocked by the Nigerian Census Board for a long time, you know, for, for a while. I think that there's just fear. And it's not even just Nigeria. Many countries have that history where if there's a civil war, it, it, it just creates discomfort and trauma, generational trauma felt on both sides for generations to come. It's, so it's not just a Nigeria thing. Other countries have had their issues. I mean, the U.S. Civil War, after, you know, the South was trying to secede, it took, you know, it, it, the country, it took a long time to come back together. It took a while to come back together, like completely. So the Nigerian government is just very fearful about that narrative, fearful about inciting that desire for the people of Southern Nigeria to secede again to secede. But the thing is, the war didn't stop the sentiment. Yeah. You know, there's still many people who feel the best thing to do is just to go and, you know, self-determination. And the Nigerian government is very much afraid of that. 
before we come to your thoughts on that, as I said, I really don't want to put you on, on, on the spot, but you did speak with people from you know different walks of life, some soldiers, teachers, you know, doctors. What was a common thing for you um, coming out from your stories, if there was any? Well, well let me just say that Biafran War Memories Project, it's still ongoing. I still have more interviews to add, so it's not finished. That's a lifelong passion project. So um, in the next few weeks, you'll see some more interviews there. It's, uh, it's been a while since I've uploaded yeah. interviews, but more are coming. So it's, it's a lifelong thing. I'm very much dedicated to this project and just adding more people, adding more voices. What was it like to hear them speak? It was just, uh, as a lover of history, it was like sitting and, and looking at history in my face. I really believe that we have to document stuff as Africans. We've long relied on oral traditions, but sometimes oral traditions are not the most reliable ways to, to tell history, to pass on history especially in this day and age, oral tradition. So I'm a huge advocate of writing things down. We don't have enough of this. You know, Europe, when you go to Europe, they have so much stuff written down, like up until, up until even before the birth of Jesus Christ. Like they have stuff written down. It's, it's amazing, you know? Um, but in Africa, we have so much that we just have no idea. Many of us Africans cannot say anything about the towns where we were born, what those towns looked like 600 years ago. We have no idea. Just 600, even 400 years ago, I can't tell you anything about my town. I can't tell you a thing. But in Europe, some of these towns have had written histories for half of a century. So that really disturbs me. And that really pushes me to do the work that I'm doing. We have to write this stuff down. And a lot of people, um, they may not understand it, but this kind of work, it's, it's work for posterity. It's work for the future. It's work for our great, great, great grandchildren. They're going to be the ones to read this stuff. You know, so, so I'm thinking long-term <laughs> and some people are a bit more short-sighted i'm kind of like i like to think long-term like what are we going to be talking about 200 years from now and 200 years from now i want people to be reading biafra more memories because we need something like this a living history of people who experienced this war we need to write things down as africans it's just that simple and there's so many things that need to get written down even just the history of your town like just write down the history or just write down what's happening, you know? Um, yeah. So, so for me, it was, it was a joy to sit down face to face with people reliving such a momentous moment, like a momentous time in human history. The Biafran war was a significant event in human history and in African history, the first war in Africa to be televised ever and these people are sitting down in front of me telling me about what it was like i feel like i have the front row seat to a award-winning movie you know I, I for me it's just it gives me chills when i'm hearing them talk because 
what they're talking about is nothing insignificant. It's, it's huge. So I'm always very grateful that people are talking about this. It's such a powerful history. That moment, 19, you know, 67 to 1970. I mean, it, it, it made a huge dent in human history. I wasn't there. So the second best thing I can do is to talk to people who were there. So I guess from their experiences and the stories that they tell you, their lives were changed. I, I did see one um, book who talks about skeletons, you know, found skeletons in their compound. Yeah, that was one of the first ones I did. Yeah. So how, how, how really, you know, Looking back, you think that their lives are really impacted by the civil Well, you know, the impact is still there, very much so. It, it's, it's in various degrees. How people deal with it is very individualistic, how they deal with the impact. For some people, they, I think for most evil people, they've learned how to live with the pain. They've learned how to bury it and not really talk about it too much, but you have to move on, you know? That's what uh, Gowan said, like, just move on. No victory, no vanquish, let's just move on. You know, let's, let's forgive and forget kind of thing, so. And like Africans, we're not, we're, we don't often talk emotionally. We don't do those in-depth, emotional yeah. healing things, you know? So we just kind of move on. And that's what many people who experienced the war did. Um, but the, the memories are still there. Some people have a suppressed hatred for Nigeria. Some people are, are have, have, have become kind of uh, suppressed in terms of they don't have any interest in seeing a Biafra come to pass like look we're just in Nigeria let's just stay here and die here let's not even try to break out again you know so people have way it impacted them it's very individualistic it, it runs the gamut the emotional spectrum is it's quite wide okay that's suppression and how things are going on in Nigeria do you think that is sustainable. I, mean, I, I did read, I did read um, Gino Chibbe's, um There was a country, and he talks about uh, the fact that some of the sentiments about the government failing to safeguard the lives of its citizens, you know, and because of that, the citizens decided, okay, if you can't protect us, we will rather protect ourselves and part of us doing that, having our own country. And in a sense, it's as if that has been repeated. And yeah. the leaders have it's also, in a sense, that they haven't learned from history. And the way they are responding to it is that same violent approach and, uh, and hand. So do you think that this is sustainable? Even if some people are, you know, let's just live in Nigeria. Do I think? The way Nigeria, the status quo in Nigeria is sustainable? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think that Nigeria is definitely on the cusp of something. 
huge. That's what I will say. I think that the foundation is shaking because the foundation was never, was never set. It was never stable to begin with. So it is shaking. Definitely. So we're, you, seeing earth, we're seeing rumblings and earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So we're on the cusp of something. Whether what, What's going to happen, we don't know, but something is definitely happening. Um, the rumblings are there. Quite loud, getting louder. Would you, would you say that there is a kind of anti-evil sentiment at the national level or the federal level? Evil sentiment? You mean secession? No, sort of an anti-evil sentiment. Oh, anti, anti. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when I first moved to Nigeria, it was quite interesting the way I was kind of perceived because in the U.S., being a diasporan, when you meet another Nigerian, you're like, oh, you're Nigerian too, woo! When I moved to Nigeria, it was like, oh, you're Igbo. So it was like about ethnicity yeah. first. Whereas in the US, it's about, oh, you're Niger it's about nationality. We, we bond just because we're from the same country. But when I moved here, I, I saw it was kind of different. Um, I, I had experiences. I definitely encountered sentiments against my ethnic group, you know, getting an apartment in Abuja, the agent, the estate agent, the real estate agent told me, you know, let me just tell you straight up front. Some landlords, many, in fact, don't rent to evil people. Um, and I heard different stereotypes. Oh, you know, you guys kill people for money. People, those jokes came towards me. You know, I was targeted by those jokes. Um, yeah, so I definitely encountered it. Whether or not it's at a federal level, well, many evil people believe that that's there, that they have been marginalized. Um, I will say that it is a widespread belief. And if the belief is there, I think that it's worth looking into. I do think it's worth lo looking into. If this is a constant, this is a long held belief that are coming from people from different, you know, facets of life. Um, different generations are saying the same thing that we feel marginalized. I think it's worth looking into. So, what, what, what would you say should be the role of journalists or even journalists in this? <laughs> That's a very individualistic mm -hmm. question. I can't, I can't speak for all people journalists at all. But um, I will say that I am interested in seeing Southeastern Nigeria covered more in international media. I'm, I'm very much interested in that. Um, in different, there are different things that are happening here, business initiatives, young people are doing this and that, you know. So I've, I've um, Kind of like made a point to just kind of explore and see what's happening here, which is why I was I was pleased I was able to do this Odinani story looking at evil traditional spirituality. So that's what I try to do. You know, I I, I think as someone from Southeastern Nigeria, 
I do want to see more international coverage. I want to I want to see that because it's not here. You know, a lot of journalists, you know, most of the time it's in the north where there's serious conflict, of course, or in Lagos. But there's some things happening in the southeast. I mean, business for goodness sake, right? A lot of millionaires in Nigeria are coming from here from the southeast. I think that that's an interesting story. So that's what I try to do with my own identity as an Igbo journal, as a journalist who is Igbo. So, you know, I want to use that phrase. I'd, ra- I'd rather say as a journalist who's Igbo as, as opposed to an Igbo journalist. Yeah, yeah. So um, doing, doing um, journalism in Nigeria, um, especially with the instance of um, the suspension of Twitter operation in Nigeria and the whole story behind that. Uh, is it more dangerous to be a journalist in Nigeria? Is it more dangerous to, to do journalism in Nigeria? So the suspension of what? Actually, given oh, this, Twitter. Yeah, 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 Twitter. yeah. And just an instance of, you know, the, the lens that the government goes to sort of go to. Oh, yes. Some oh, of yes. I am very conscious of my personal safety. Very, yeah. I've taken steps to really, you know, just kind of watch my surroundings, most definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever felt more concerned about mm-hmm. my personal safety than I do now. So if, if you weren't a journalist, what, what, what would you be doing? Oh, I'd be an anthropologist. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I'd be I'd be in different villages. I'd be an anthropologist and doing more dance, performance art. That's very interesting. All right. Uh, just uh, um, the last question. Um, so grateful that you have given me given me your time today. So, what do you believe? <laughs> I'm just making this. Not me putting you on the spot. So don't I don't think that you have to give me a definite answer. Do you believe in, say, the Biafran idea that somehow the evil should get out of Nigeria as a whole? Would you, where do you fall on that? Well, I fall as an objective reporter on that. I, I am someone who is trying to hear multiple sides mm-hmm. of this issue, as many sides as possible. That's what I'm interested in. I want to hear the different voices, the different angles on this very controversial topic of the Biafra cause. So um, there are some people who want to stay, some who don't. You know, it's just, I'm just interested in hearing as many voices as possible because there is no consensus. That's the fact yeah. of the Biafra cause. All right, thank you. So where can um, the listeners go to see your contents? You said you work at Vice at the moment. Is that the full yeah. time thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Vice. So um, Vice currently currently doesn't air in T on TV in Africa. It's okay. it's airing on TV in the US, but that's going to change. So maybe in the near future, we'll see. You know, Africans can watch Vice in their TV screens. In the meantime, they can kind of you know they can download the apps. Yeah. Vice has a lot of apps. As Vice has like three apps, Vice News, Vice Media, it, it is a lot. Mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, looking at stories on YouTube, we have millions of followers on Vice's YouTube page. Yeah, um, 
that's what I do. But I also have my blog, journalistinafrica.com. It's just www.journalistinafrica.com. And it's just me kind of sharing tips and observations and lessons learned from being on the continent for the past, what, seven years now. And also talking to other journalists who, who, who report here, you know, on the continent, sharing experiences. Okay. I'll, I'll include um, the link to the show notes. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks for the insightful questions. Mm-hmm.